Hello and welcome to HX Superheroes, where we explore the full story of human-centered leadership when it comes to making strategic and operational decisions, no matter what your business is. Today, we are speaking to John Sills, managing partner at customer-led growth company, The Foundation. He started his career on a market stall in Essex, moved to the front line at HSBC, and finished his stint there as head of customer innovation. Essentially, he spent the last 25 years working with global brands to make things easier, better, and more straightforward for their customers. These include heavy hitters like Sky, The Body Shop, Bupa, Morrison's, eBay, and of course, UNICEF. He is also currently a fellow at the RSA, the Royal Society for Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers, and Commerce, and a board advisor for ECHO, who specializes in sustainable products for the digital economy. He has just published his first book, The Human Experience, How to Make Life Better for Your Customers and Create a More Successful Organization. It is a memoir, a manifesto, and a practical guidebook to creating a culture and a customer experience with humanity at the heart, no matter what your size of your business is. John, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to have you here in the studio. Yeah, thanks, Sammy. That was great. I quite like, I might put that on the next edition of the book, I think. Fantastic. At the end, yeah. Fantastic. So let's get right into it. When you say human, what does that mean to you? Yeah, I think I think what, what I've noticed really over the last 20 years is that organizations have become very functional in the way that they work and the way they deliver customer experience. We've had so much great technology that's come through, which has made a lot of things quicker and easier and more efficient to do, but we've kind of lost that heart. I describe it a bit like the Tin Man in The Wizard of Oz. Mm. You know, organizations are kind of very functional. They've got all the bits they need to move, but what they're lacking is that kind of real emotional connection. And I think that humanity then comes out in that in the way the organizations are working. They're losing that emotional connection, but what, they're not, what they don't have is people that are allowed to be human. So organizations are full of humans that aren't allowed to act in a human way. So at its heart, and in the book I talk about these various behaviors that become part of making a human experience, but at its heart is letting your people be people. And even if you're designing great platforms, still being able to have that humanity that's within that and that's part of that. And if you think about your experience, let's say in the global banking sector, how does that that human experience then translate into financial services, for example? Yeah, I think so. It's easy to talk about how it doesn't translate to start with, I think, which is you see so much jargon, for example, when you're working in banking, uh, when you're working in any retail or regulatory environment, a lot of jargon that comes out, a lot of internal language that comes out, a lot of policies, a lot of procedures, a lot of rules that get in the way and that end up in a situation where your person on the other end of the phone is saying, oh, I would if I could, but I can't, or both parties know what the common sense answer is, but they're not allowed to do it. Now, when you see organizations that do this really well, and there's some of the banks that do this really well, that the startups like Monzo, for example, mm -hmm. and Starling Bank, they've really stripped back, and actually Metro Bank did this 10, 12 years ago, stripped back all of that jargon, very straightforward in their language. One of Metro Bank's rules when they launched was no stupid banking language, and they still stick to that now. So they try and talk in a really human way, just speak in a human way, real words. They don't confuse or confuddle you with all of this different uh, you know, language or tie you up in rules and regulations and terms and conditions. So what the banks uh, do well, what they're starting to do well, is to kind of strip back some of that kind of confusing language. Mm -hmm. But they still struggle with that. 
because they're so inside out, because they're so surrounded by their own regulations, it's hard to remember what it's like to not know how money works and to not know how, it's called the curse of knowledge. You know, it's very hard to remember what it's like to not know what an APR is, for example, when you've spent 25 years working yeah. in it. And I mean, that's a really interesting concept because when some of the banks that you talked about are relatively new to the final financial services industry. And so when you've got a bank like HSBC or some of these large bricks and mortar banks that have been around for decades, mm. they don't have the benefit of starting from scratch. So for customers out there that are experiencing a similar issue, have you got any advice for them? Yeah, I mean, we, we sometimes talk about it being uh, outside in and inside out, you know. Organizations that are really great with customers are really great at seeing the world from the outside in, understanding what it's like to be in your customer's shoes. We sometimes describe it as a bit like a planet. You know, the organization's a planet and the customers are kind of floating around and you've got to be able to escape your own gravity to get out there and see what really matters to customers. But the bigger the planet, the stronger the gravity. Mm. So the likes of Monzo and Starling and, you know, some of the other fintechs and neobanks, they're a bit smaller, so it's a bit easier to stay connected to customers. When you're an HSBC, you know, you've got so much gravity because the weight and the size of the organization that's really pulling you, pulling you into that. So if you're a customer, that can be incredibly frustrating. And so first of all, as a customer, you need to make your decisions based on the organization that you think speaks your language, the organization that you can best understand. That's so important when it comes to money. If you start to have big issues and you start to have big problems, it kind of sounds bad to say, but it's kind of good to try and circumnavigate the process. You know, write that letter to the CEO, try and get your your problems escalated to a level where you're going to be able to uh, have someone that's willing to step in front of the rules rather than just slavishly follow the rules. So with a bank like HSBC, <clears throat> sorry, with a bank like HSBC and given your experience there, what did they get right? And what are the areas that they were challenged with that they had to really focus on? Yeah, I really loved my time at HSBC and I think they're a superb organization. I was very lucky to work there. And they've got some incredible ways of working. I actually thought they were more advanced than most of the organizations I still work with now in terms of understanding what really matters to their customers, um, in terms of being able to kind of pioneer and stretch ahead of other organizations in terms of what they were wanting to do. But they had two big problems. One was a lack of perspective in terms of looking outside the industry to seeing what was possible. And this happens a lot in banking. Yeah. They tend to look within their own industry, just try and copy whoever's just ahead. And so no one in banking is ever really more than three months ahead of anyone else. There's very few organizations in, in financial institutions or financial services at all that are really pioneering and really trailblazing on behalf of their customers. The other big issue HSBC have was one of implementation. So we were sat there in 2012 and we knew exactly what the next 10 years of banking looked like. We were really close to our customers. We really knew what that future was going to look like over the next five to 10 years. It was just very, very difficult to get it done. And it was mm -hmm. difficult to get it done because of arguments around return on investment. You know, where's the revenue coming from? Where's the money coming from? Yep. And in the book, I talk about ROI being one of the myths <clears throat> because often organizations say, we'll prove the return on investment of doing something good for customers. Whereas bad customer experience is really expensive to provide, not just because you lose customers or they stop buying more products with you, but it's just expensive. You get failure demand, you know, things take two or three phone calls to sort out. We work with one organization where 35% of all the calls they had coming into the contact center were repeat phone calls from people that rung up the day before and weren't happy with the answer. So you get all this failure demand, all this stress on your service as a result of not giving a good customer experience. So often the ROI 
the return of the investment of doing something good for customers is it makes you a more a more efficient business and a more cost-effective business. Yep. That was the big challenge at somewhere like HSBC. You had all the ideas, you couldn't get them through implementation because you couldn't prove to the financial part of the business that it was going to make you money in a simple way. Almost working against one another when you think about it. But yeah. so, so most companies, when you think about it, whether they're listed or they're private, have got financial backers, investors, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and they, I suspect they're struggling with some of the same challenges. So what's your advice to the leaders in those businesses to try and overcome that? Yeah, I think, I think there's these two or three lenses to look at. One is thinking about customer decisions. So remembering that whatever business you're in, products on them on themselves by themselves don't make any money like you know a product sat on a shelf isn't going to make any money mm. at all it's only a customer's decision to buy that product that's going to make you money so you have to start by understanding what are the big drivers of your customers decisions and then be able to apply those to what you're trying to achieve financially so there's a, a first thing there which is trying to flip on its head how you look at your profit and your loss and your revenue and your costs the second thing is looking at this cost of inaction so looking at if we don't do things, what's going to be the cost? And I, one of the things I did at HSBC was launch our first mobile app in the UK. And we did that off the back of a, an IT failure that there'd been two or three months before around a, an overly um, secure uh, system that we put in place for people to log on to their mm -hmm. banking. And we realized that actually digital satisfaction was plummeting, went about 30% in three months because people could no longer log on and do the thing they wanted to do. So that became less of a case of how we're going to generate revenue by releasing this new app and more, well, actually, all these people that are leaving, we can track how many of those people then leave, go elsewhere, stop buying products with us. So the cost of inaction was a million pound a month yep. and actually it was going to cost a million pounds to build the app. So there's that way of looking at it. And then the third way, the one I just mentioned, which is actually where's your cost coming into the business or mistakes you're making? So it just, it's just a change of perspective, a change of mindset that brings together different parts of the balance sheet that otherwise are kept quite separate. Measuring that customer experience, managing that customer feedback loop, it sounds to me that that is a vital ingredient to making that happen. We talk a lot about sort of customer experience on this podcast, and we typically like to save this for uh, for the end of the end of the show. But yeah. given your experience and what you've written about in this book, I would love to know, and I'm sure our listeners would love to know, what was the best customer experience you've ever had, and why? Yeah, I, I really like the question because it's so much easier to talk about the bad ones than it is about the good ones. Yeah. My my best current best ever customer experience was uh, just before COVID. I was um, I was lucky enough to be working on a project with a company that runs railway holidays. And so I was on a train uh, going through the Swiss Alps um, on a trip from kind of St Pancras into Switzerland through the Swiss Alps. And it was me and about 30 octogenarians because it's mainly older people that go on these holidays. And I was there for the first two days to research. Uh, that was the excuse anyway, to research, you know, what, what their experience was like. Mm. I got on the train at Geneva. We had a change at Zurich. And about 15 minutes in, the train broke down. And I was really delighted because one of my colleagues was Swiss and she told me about how efficient Swiss railway was. So I was straight away WhatsApping her and taking the mickey about, you know, typically inefficient Swiss railway. And then something interesting happened. About two or three minutes after the train had stopped, the train guard walked down to our group. And he said, look, I'm really sorry. I know you're a big group traveling through our country. Train's broken down. I'm really, really sorry about that. This is what we think's happened. It's probably going to take about 15 minutes to fix it. 
you might miss your connection in Zurich, but I'll let you know. You wait here. As soon as I know what's going on, I'll come back and I'll tell you what's happening. So he walks off. Two minutes after that, we get a phone call from the head of operations from Swiss Rail. says, I've heard what's happened. I know you're a big group traveling through our country. I'm really sorry about what's happened. Your train guard is going to look after you. But if anything you're unsure of, give us a call. You've got my direct number. I'll help you work out what you need to do next. Mm -hmm. About 15 minutes later, the train starts moving. Guard comes back down and says, right, this was the problem. This is how we fixed it. We are going to be into Zurich about 20, 25 minutes late. You are going to miss your connection. I'm really sorry about that. Your next train is going to go from platform 14. It's quite a big, complicated station. So I'm going to have someone there waiting for you on the platform when your train gets in. And they're going to walk you to your train to make sure you get on the right one. Off he goes and the train pulls into Zurich station. And true to his word, there's someone there right at the door with an umbrella for all 30 of us to kind of follow around the station, which is quite complex. We get to platform 14, where the next train's waiting for us. They've already reserved a carriage on that new train because we have one reserved on the old train. And as we got on, they gave us tea and coffee vouchers for the inconvenience. We ended up getting in about 25 minutes late. Now on my morning commute into London, if I get in 25 minutes late, I'm kind of high-fiving everybody else and hugging the commuters. Like, I don't know what to do with all this extra time that we've been given because it's just accepted that you're gonna get in that late. And I think what I loved about the experience was they took absolute ownership of the issue and they really cared about delivering on their promise and the outcome that we'd paid to get, which was to get to where we wanted to get to with as little fuss and in the most ease as possible. They didn't just throw their hands up and say, yeah, really sorry, train's broken down, good luck, off you go. They took real ownership and real accountability. It was a brilliant experience, but it's, I think, at the heart of a lot of what's missing in a lot of experiences now. Organisations don't seem to want to take ownership. If anything, they seem to be really defensive and wanting to push back on customers. We've gone from the customer is always right to the customer's wrong and probably trying to pull a fast one on you. And so that was a really brilliant experience and really showed that ownership. That's a really interesting point. What do you think is driving that? Is, Is that something... Uh, off the back of the global pandemic? Is that cost tightening for many organizations across the globe? What's yeah. what's what's underlying all of that? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think there's, uh, it could be those elements, but I think the trend has been there since before COVID. I think it's easy to look interesting. at that. And organizations, I think, <clears throat> are using that as an excuse of we've had to cut costs and we've had to come through these tough times. But the trend has been there you know, uh, over the last 10 years. If you look in America, um, there's a thing called the National Rage Survey, <clears throat> first done in 1972. 32% of people said they had a problem with a product or service with an organisation. By 2018, uh, that was up to 64%. Now it's up to 72%. So more than twice as many people have a problem with an organisation now than they did in 1972 in the US. And that trend has been going up and up across that last 30 or 40 years, nearly 50 years actually now. So I think what's driving it is this separation of the the kind of humanity, the relationship with organizations. So as a lot of this technology has come in, and as I said, it's created, you know, faster experiences, you can do more things in more ways than ever before. Mm -hmm. But it has created a disassociation between the organization and the customer between the colleague and the customer. So much more is faceless now. And I think therefore, there's less kind of emotional connection to want to try and do the right thing. It's easier just to kind of do the thing that you're told to do, just to stick to the rules you're told to follow. 
it's a bit like keyboard warriors, you know, it's easier to be rude to someone on Twitter because you're not really looking at them. And I think that started to come through with organizations. So much of that relationship is now just kind of text-based, whether it's kind of email or web chat or even kind of chatbots where you're not even speaking to a human, it becomes so much easier to program those systems to kind of be quite defensive. The other part of that I think matters is I think that we've, um, there's this belief in organizations that nothing will go wrong. So I think, uh, you know, 20 years ago, when there was a lot more human involvement, you understood that things went right and things went wrong. And if something went wrong, you'd have to step in and help, just in the way that the team at Swiss Rail did. Mm -hmm. As organizations have created more digital experiences, there's kind of this belief in technology that well, we'll create this experience and it's perfect. And so everything's going to be solved. Yeah. And what you're finding now is, I think, more experiences that are going right. But when they go wrong, you kind of fall into this pit of despair and no one knows how to resolve it because the system that was meant to be perfect has failed. And so it's actually much harder to get a problem resolved now than it used to be because I think organizations believe that problems won't happen quite so much. So I think that's behind it a bit as well. There's an old adage that people don't buy from companies, they buy from people. Yeah, yeah. Would, you, would that hold true for some of the work that you've done in your research? Yeah, I, th I think that I think that is true. I mean, we you know we might come and talk about this later, but I talk about the myth of loyalty in the, in the book as well, and I think there's a big element there where customer loyalty doesn't really exist, um, because loyalty only ever really exists with people, friends, family, maybe communities, yeah. um, and and so I do think that is right. I think you can feel you've got a relationship with an organisation, and I think the more human organisations can give across that sense of being a person. But they're often people that have got visible leaders or, you know, you know someone that's in that environment. As things have got more faceless and more commoditized and it's become easier to switch, I think customers are just staying with organizations or less tied to organizations than they were because it's so much easier to move. Yeah. And they don't have that emotional connection there anymore. And so what's your advice to leaders to crack that nut? I, I think there's a big thing for leaders about transparency and authenticity. So some of the companies I study in the book, uh, the thing that I found really, one of the things I found really stark more than anything is they are very upfront, open, very clear with their customers about who they are and what they represent. There's a guy called Guy Singh Watson. He runs a company called Riverford. And every week, it's like a veg box uh, producer. So every week you get your veg box and every week in the box, there's a little blog that he's written <clears throat> and it comes on a bit of A5 card. And it's him writing it. And it's never sanitized. Quite often it's about farming or it's about, uh, you know, vegetables or what's happening in with weather and how climate mm -hmm. change is affecting farming. But he's really comfortable stepping into big debates. So during the Black Lives Matter protests after the murder of George Floyd a few years ago, he wrote an article. So he's a 60s, in his 60s, white guy from Middle England. And he wrote this article that said, my daughter questioned me on our response to Black Lives Matter. And I had to admit I was completely out of my depth. Like, I was very aware, I didn't know what I was talking about. And he says, we didn't want to be one of those companies that just changed their logo on Instagram and said, look how great we are. He said, we wanted to hold our hands up and say, yeah, we're not very good at this and we don't know what the right thing to do is. Then he laid out what they were going to do to go and learn more and work out. He did a similar thing when he gave up the company to allow it to be employee owned. And he talked about his personal struggles as a leader and the challenges he was going to have as a leader. Now, what that does is really make you believe in the organization because you're really buying into him and his authenticity. And I think you then believe that if he's open and authentic, that's going to start to come in the organization. Interestingly, when COVID hit, 
all of a sudden, all of these CEOs that have been hidden behind all these walls appeared. We all suddenly got emails from everyone saying, hi, I'm, you know, Dave or Alan or, you know, anyone else. And I'm the CEO of Tesco and we're all in this together. And I want to tell you what we're doing because they suddenly felt like they had permission to be open and be honest and be authentic. Then COVID ended, ended, and it's all gone again. And now we just get the blank emails coming out of these organizations. Now you no longer hear from these CEOs. So that's a really big thing because if you're authentic as a leader and you're transparent as a leader, that filters down into your organization and the people that work for you. That's great. So let's switch gears a little bit because we're we're really here to talk about your book, The The Human Experience. Now, this is near and dear to my heart and of course, uh, uh, forced it because we believe in the human experience as well. What motivated you to write this book? Yeah, so I've, um, I guess there's a couple of triggers. I've been writing articles for about 10 years. I really love writing. I really love writing stories about customer experience because often they're a bit ridiculous or a bit funny and I quite enjoy getting my thinking straight. But what probably triggered it was about four or five years ago, I was on holiday with my wife and my son and we were in the UK and we were on this steam train, you know, day out on a steam train. And you'll know the type I mean, it was kind of big, deep leather seats you can fall back into, nice oak panel tables that you can spread your food out on. Someone coming down the aisle, handing out home-baked goods. And my son said to me, oh, daddy, is this what it's like when you get the train into London every day? And as I mentioned earlier, it is uh, emphatically nothing like it. Nothing like that. I'm lucky to get kind of a stranger's armpit and a cold, wet sandwich. (laughs) And, and And I thought... And that's what got me thinking. Isn't that interesting? That because the sign of progress should be you make things more efficient, but you keep the level of quality the same. But we've kind of allowed the level of quality to slip, and we've kind of all accepted it. And then I started looking into it more deeply, and so well, customer satisfaction hasn't improved at all in the past ten years. Some of that will be because of expectations changing, mm-hmm. but you would expect it to pick up. You know, the National Rage Survey I mentioned customers having more problems than ever before. So that got me thinking about actually maybe I do need to try and try and tell this story. And the common link that I started to see in all of my stories and then the case studies and the interviews I was doing was this lack of humanity that was the thing internally in organizations and externally for customers that was lacking. Interesting. Are there any particular stories that really sort of touched you when when you were doing your research? Yeah, from the experiences I've had. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I um, there's one story I'll, I'll tell which I think is possibly the worst customer experience I've ever had that people often like to hear about. Um, so I moved house about four or five years ago as well. And I decided I wanted to buy one of those really big, comfortable reading chairs. I'd obviously temporarily forgotten that I had two children, so the chances of me sitting and reading are fairly unlikely, but I wanted to buy one anyway. Yeah. And I went to this local furniture shop, and, and I was in luck, actually. They had an ex-display furniture sale on. <clears throat> so I saw this really big, comfortable, big yellow chair, half price. I thought, right, I'm going to buy that. The only problem was I'd driven to the store with my wife and son in quite a small car. So I didn't know how I was going to be able to get it home. So I said to the guy, look, I want to I want to buy the chair. Can I get it delivered? Because um, I can't get it in my car. And he said, no, because it's ex-display furniture. You have to get it home yourself. We don't do delivery on it. Okay. Bit annoying, but I understand it. So then I went up to him and I said, okay, I need to try and work out how I'm going to do this. I said, so can I take the chair out to my car that's in your car park just a few metres outside the door? Can I take my chair out to your car, to the car, see if I can fit it in? If I can, I'll buy it. If not, I'll bring it back in. So he goes upstairs and he asks his manager and he comes back down and he says, no, you can only take it off the premises once you've bought the chair. So I said, okay, can I buy the chair, take it out to the car, try and fit it in? If it fits, I'll take it home. If not, I'll bring it back in and get a refund. 
He goes upstairs, asks his manager, comes back down. No, no refunds on its display furniture sale. Okay. So I said, okay, can I buy the chair, leave it here for an hour while I drive my wife and son home, clear out the car, come back and pick it up in an hour. Goes upstairs, asks his manager, comes back down. No, once you bought the chair, you have to take it off the premises immediately. And by now I'm feeling like I'm in one of those chicken, egg, fox, bag of grain, getting across a river puzzles. There's some way of trying to work this out, but I can't quite work out what it is. And so eventually I think, okay, I'm going to buy the chair and I'll leave my wife and son here in the shop for an hour while I drive it home and come back again. And, uh, and he seemed happy with that. Um, and this guy was like 21 muscly, everything I'm not. And so I said to him, look, can you at least help me carry the chair out to the car? And he said, yeah, yeah that's fine, no problem at all. But I can only carry it as far as the door because once we're outside the door, it's then your property and I'm not insured to be touching it. So true to his word, him and his colleague, they help me carry the chair over, they put it down by the door, they stand and watch while me and my wife, who's four foot ten, struggle to get this chair into the car while my son's playing chicken in the car park with all the other cars. And I think what, what really got me about that experience, and it took over an hour, it's completely ridiculous. Everyone knows that's a ridiculous scenario. You know, uh, clearly that the guy hasn't got any empowerment, he's just staying behind these rules, the manager's not bothering to come down. But I'm just trying to, I'm trying to give them money. I'm trying to buy a product I want and mm. give that company money for a product they want to sell. And at every point, there was all these barriers going up in the way. And for me, that was a great example of the problem we have because it was really inflexible. You know, there was no common sense. You know, clearly, anyone that's looking at that is saying, well, there's no human response there. And if that colleague was sat where you are now and I was telling them the story, they'd think it was ridiculous as well. But in that moment, they lose all of that humanity. They're standing behind the rules. I mean, in, in a lot of the examples that, that you talk about in your book and, and that we've, we've discussed here, it comes down to institutional instability, yeah. right? And, and barriers to, to breaking down sort of the rules and the policies that sit behind that, that create these experiences. For leaders that are trying to drive change and transformation, where do you start? when all you can see are barriers in front of you. Yeah. Given your, you know, the experiences and what you've written in your book, any advice for those leaders? Yeah, I think, so I think the biggest in the first part is all around being really connected to your customers. It sounds like a really obvious thing to say, mm -hmm. and most organizations believe they are, but they're really not. <clears throat> now, talking in the book about the myth of customer feedback, and we've got more data than ever coming into organizations at the moment, customer data. But the problem is nearly all of that data is at the thin end of the wedge. You'll know what I mean. It's like this epidemic of feedback requests. You can't have any experience without some kind of feedback <coughs> survey. Now, these surveys are really useful. They really help you understand what matters to your customers in terms of their experience with you. But a lot of them are at this thin end of the wedge. They're about the organization rather than really being at the thick end of the wedge and understanding about customers' life, what really matters to them in their life, their hopes, dreams, ambitions, the yep. things they're trying to achieve, work, family, friends, challenges, the things that get in the way. Now, this deluge of information into organizations, it convinces leaders that they're close to what matters to their customers. But in truth, they're just close to customers' opinions of their business. And it's a very subtle but a very significant difference. So the first thing organizations, particularly leaders in big organizations, need to do is really reconnect with what matters to their customers in their lives. And for that, I think it needs what we call immersion, proper immersion. You need to go and spend time with, their, with your customers where they are. You need to go and speak to them in their homes with their permission. Mm -hmm. you, know, you need to go shopping with them. 
you need to come work on the front line. You know, you need to go and work in your own contact centre, not just um, be given a whole load of people to call who've complained, not just respond to some surveys that are promoted or detractors. You need to be in the front line, spend time with your colleagues. You have to have that deep connection with what really matters to your customers. That helps you make better decisions about what you can do. Yep. But it also helps give you that... Um, humanity. Humanity and that visceral connection to get things done in organisations. What we often find is a lot of the data is presented through PowerPoints and PDFs. Yep. And I've been in those meetings, and I'm sure you would have been too, where if what's on the screen is an inconvenient truth, people would rather question the methodology and say, well, is that really the right sample size? Did we ask the right people? Did we ask them at the right time? If you hear something firsthand and directly, then that gives you, you can't, you might not like what you hear, but you can't deny it's true. So that gives you that visceral connection that you can then use alongside the data that you've got to have that real conviction to make change happen. That's, yeah, I mean, that kind of strikes a, a chord with, with us. Mm. And when I say us, I mean Forrester, because one of the reasons we wanted to have you on this podcast is that I think we are very much aligned in our thinking and, and our vision in terms of what the true human experience is all about. And one of the things that we've done, uh, taken a great deal of effort, time and money to invest in is building out a platform that allows you to go a bit deeper than understanding what that quantitative view of customer experience and balancing that with what we would call the qualitative view. Mm -hmm. So actually the, the getting a full account of what's really going on in the mind of a customer, whether that's in person, online, however that's being facilitated. Do you see that happening? Is there a trend in the market of bridging the gap between data and actual emotion and feeling? I think it's starting to come, but I don't think the kind of tools that you're describing and the kind of tools that, as I understand it, you're developing, I don't think they're prevalent enough at the moment. I think there's a huge opportunity there for organisations to use those kind of tools to really bring together that qual and that quant side. What you tend to find is organisations still do one or the other and people prefer big data sets with big numbers that are statistically significant. And that does matter. That really matters mm -hmm. to have that. But it can mask things because it brings in averages. And all of a sudden you're looking at average experiences and you're looking at you know an average call waiting time of five minutes, for example, rather than the 10% of people that had to wait more than half an hour. Mm -hmm. You can convince yourself that actually it's okay, you know, that average experience. It's okay that most people thought it was eight out of 10, but it's the extremes you need to get to. You know, you need to look at the people that are having that really terrible experience because ultimately you're dealing with people's lives. You're creating a huge amount of stress for those people. But you also need to go up the other end. You need to look at the people that are having the amazing experience because that's what you want to replicate. Yep. They're the successes you want to do more of. They're, that's what you want to praise and, and showcase in the organisation. So I do think that organisations are just starting. And funnily enough, something like ChatGPT has probably sparked a bit of thought in this. I think organisations are starting to realise there's this lack of humanity and starting to realise they've probably gone a bit too far just on surveys and data and they're missing that connection. But the problem is it's a very easy way to manage. You can manage through numbers. It's a very comfortable way it's to a, manage. And it's an efficient way to manage. It's very efficient. And given the cost pressures that many customers and many businesses are under now at yeah. the moment. And with this evolving trend of AI, and we hear it and see it everywhere, and you touched on this earlier, customer experience apparently seems to be getting worse, not better, yeah. based on some of the data that you quote. With the introduction of AI and more machine learning tools and data analysis, that human connection is going to become even less 
front yeah. and center in the human experience. So paints a pretty bleak picture. Yeah. What's your view on that? Is it going to get better or is it going to get worse? So I think it could go either way. It could go either way because I think one thing I'm keen to stress with the human experience is it's not necessarily just about humans. <clears throat> you can have a really human experience by using great digital technology, by using AI. It's about humanity rather than humans. <clears throat> so an example of this is about language. You know, you can write in a really human way, even if it's a chatbot, you know, for example, even if it's an email, there's a difference between a an email that's written in a really human way and an email that's very automated and very officious. Mm. So it is about the humanity in that. I think the, the risk with uh, some of the AI tools that we're going to see is that organizations see it as a kind of a quick win, a cost save, um, another barrier to stop people talking to real people. It's a little bit like, and you may have experienced this, it's my personal pet hate at the moment. When you phone up an organization and you press your different buttons to try and get through, and then it says, um, oh, you can do this online. You know, did you know you could do this online? And I go, well, well, yes, because it's 2023. So I know the internet exists. I've chosen to phone you for a reason. And even worse, when it says you can do this online, goodbye, and it just hangs up on you. Yeah. <clears throat> and I'm I sure find, we've all experienced that. Yeah, and I, I find that incredible because 20 years ago, organizations wanted to speak to customers. That's how you build a relationship. Yeah. If you just stop customers speaking to you, your relationship goes. So this is where we've got to be really careful because some of the AI tools that are available could be brilliant <clears throat> for helping organizations. They could be brilliant for helping customers. Actually, more than anything, they'll probably be brilliant for helping colleagues work out how best to help customers. But I think there will always be a need in some situations for customers just to hear that it's another person that's heard their problem. You know, if you've got an issue with an organization and you phone up, you've got this kind of script in your head that you've been preparing. You know, here's my 20-second thing I want to yell at you about mm -hmm. or talk to you about. And you just need to get that off your chest. And you just want to know that another person has heard that, even if that other person goes, I understand, I'm really sorry about that, that sounds terrible, let me help you. Even if then the way they help you is completely automated and using lots of tools to get you yeah. to the same answer anyway. There's a need for that connection. So, Empathy. Empathy, essentially, and yeah. that real uh, expression of empathy as well. Mm. So I think it, uh, I hope it could get better because the tools could be brilliant. The danger is the organizations that just see it as another quick win and cost save. But over time, those organizations will end up being less successful because they'll commoditize themselves out of the market. There's a great example in your book, a company called AO, mm. that is sort of at the forefront of thinking about the human experience. And I think <clears throat> you, you talk about this, that the CEO asks its, its employees to think about mums and grants. Yeah. Can yeah. you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, it's a brilliant story. So a guy called John Roberts, he's the CEO there. He's actually got an amazing story of starting the business from a one pound bet in a pub in Manchester and it all kind of went from there. They're an online um, uh, white goods uh, retailer and deliverer um, and they've got an incredibly empowered team so john roberts is a uh, you know he's a kind of a walk the floor manager you know he spends every day down in his contact centers down with his drivers and he's quite bullish about this his opinion is well how can you not if you're a leader of, an, of a business how can you not be spending time with your customers and with your frontline team what else are you doing that could be more important when you talk to John about customer experience strategy, he's pretty clear. In AO.com, they have two rules for their customer experience strategy, which is treat everyone how you'd want your grand to be treated and make decisions that would make your mum proud. And that's it. 
they've got a really empowered team. Their drivers are really empowered. Their contact centre team are really empowered. And they're the rules that he puts in place. And he says, look, if you're trying to do that every day, you will end up giving great experiences. Occasionally, you might make a mistake. You know, If you decide that you're going to give someone compensation of like £4,000, that's probably not great. So we might have a chat about that afterwards and work out where the line is. But I'd rather you do that because actually if most of the time you're human, then most of the time you're going to give a great experience. And I particularly like the make decisions that would make your mum proud because mm. I think they're both, both of those rules, the mums and grands rules, everyone can relate to them. It doesn't matter if you're 16 and it's your first job or you're 60 and you're towards the end of your career. If you go in and you're told that, you know implicitly what that means. And then you've got the freedom to do that in the right way for that particular customer, rather than having lots and lots of draconian rules about how you need to deliver your experience. They're a brilliant organisation, incredible experience, and so many stories within their business of where their team have made decisions that have had a big impact on their customers. Yeah, and it really sort of shows the importance of values and, and, yeah. and not just putting them up on the wall, but living them day in and day out and empowering your people to be able to, to deliver that kind of customer experience. Um, you state in your book that the first step to giving a great customer experience is to get great people. Can you talk about what that might look like for organizations, especially today, when they're struggling to find great talent, mm. you know, uh, companies are, as we talked about, are, are, are looking to reduce costs. There's an overabundance of, of talent in the workforce and trying to balance that as, uh, as, as leaders are trying to make decisions that are going to benefit the, the organization. Yeah, so I think, I think if you're going to have a really human organization, you need to let your people be people. You need to let your humans be the humans they've spent all their life training to be. Um, and that means ideally you don't have lots and lots of rules around that of exactly what they need to do because they tend to restrict rather than enable. So you need to recruit people that you trust to be really great with customers. Um, so First Direct in the UK, the, the telephone only bank launched in the late 80s, real kind of pioneer, real kind of trailblazer, amazing customer experience. They have a saying of kind of recruit the smile, train the skill. So you recruit people that you believe are empathetic and emotional and that are smiley and want to make people's days better, want to help other people have a good day. Then you train them around all the things they need to do in banking. That's much better than trying to recruit someone that knows banking inside out, but is a bit miserable or has no interest in people at all. So it's not even about, I think, I think it's interesting the way you worded it, because it's not even about finding people that are particularly talented. You know, you can find people that kind of have no talent at all. But if they're people that care about other people and you manage to put them in a, in a situation where they're able to express themselves, they'll give a great experience. You just need to train around some of the specific areas mm. of your industry, regardless of what your industry is in. So that's why so much of this is about getting the right people on board, getting people that really care. And I think there's a lot of those people out there. The problem is in a lot of big organisations, they're kind of bought in and then shut down and told not to. They're told to become almost more robotic and told to leave all that empathy that they have at the door. You know, if you think about, funnily enough, we got asked recently to help an organisation train its team on being more empathetic, its contact centre team. But you, can't, you don't really need to train people how to be empathetic. You know, if you and I are in a pub and, you know, you walked in and you told me some bad news... I'd know how to respond implicitly. Most people would. But in an organisation, in a contact centre particularly, you might tell me the bad news, but I'm so distracted by the 15 other screens that are going around or the fact I've got to get you off the phone in three minutes, I don't respond in that way. 
So if you want your people to be empathetic, you need to get out of the way all of the things that are in the way of them being that person. Mm. You don't need them to train them how to be empathetic necessarily. I mean, the theme I'm kind of drawing from that is it's it's more about attitude than it is aptitude. Completely. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, where's the future? What, what's it look like to you? For customer experience, yep. really. I um I think and I hope it's a continued mix of the the digital and the human side because I think the organisations that get this right that's what they do. So in my book I talk about City Mapper for example. You know you don't ever really speak to a human with City Mapper, but it's a wonderfully human organisation. You know they uh, whenever you go to a new city and City Mapper changes city. I don't know if you've noticed, but it changes the icons of the app to match the icons of the city you're in. Now, the cheap thing for them to have done would have been to have one icon that always means the metro or the underground, or one icon that always means the bus. But whenever you go to the new city, you get the icon that's the bus icon for that particular city. There's all these little subtle things that they do within their app that enables them to create that slightly more human experience. Same with AO.com. They're an online retailer, but they give this kind of humanity in, in the experience that they're providing. So I think and I hope that the future is that organisations realize that they've kind of lost touch with their customers. They still kind of harness the brilliant technology that they've got, but they start to bring back in humanity, particularly in language and communication, particularly in staying more connected to, to customers. AI should come in and help their colleagues do that in a more efficient way. That's where I think AI plugs into this, uh, really helping their colleagues, not just um, providing another outlet for you know the organization to kind of stop the, the, the customer speaking to them. What's interesting in a lot of the work we do at the foundation, we spend a lot of time doing research with customers. Customers that we speak to between the age of 16 and 30 are just as likely to say they want to speak to a human as people that are in their 50s and 60s. Funnily enough, it's the little millennial group in the 30s and 40s that are slightly less keen to speak to real people. But there's all these kind of presumptions about younger people that they're digital only, and it's just not true. This mm -hmm. trait of wanting to speak to someone when you need to really understand something or need help has remained. So we often talk about the things that don't change. So when I look at the future, there's going to be some things that don't change, and there's always going to be that need to have that empathy, to have that humanity, to be there when things go wrong. It's how we use the technology to help enable that and enable your people to be human, not replace them. So we're kind of wrapping things up here, but of course we've, we've also got our standard questions that we like to close on, John. You know, you talked about it at the outset, one of your, your, your finest customer experience. Have you got one more that you're able to share? Yeah, I'll, um, I'll talk about Honest Burgers, actually, because I've, I've accidentally started to become known for someone that eats a lot of Honest Burgers, uh, which is the brand in the, uh, in the UK. I don't think it's in the US. Yeah, I think it's in the UK. I think it's UK, yeah. yeah. Um, fantastic organization, uh, you know, really authentic, very transparent in their ways of working, doing lots of great stuff with farmers. Opposite our office, we've got an Honest Burgers. Uh, in fact, if you hit the fire alarm in our office, that's our meeting place. So uh, we get a lot of fire alarms. But, you know, I used to go in there all the time and they're a really fantastic team there. Um, you know, the, when you walk in, they're really friendly. The music's great. They've got pictures up around the walls of them as the team having fun. Uh, and I've got a slightly odd order. Uh, I like the plant burger, which is like the vegan burger. Yeah. I'm not vegan, but I just really like it. It's a bit lighter. But I really love bacon. So I always ask for the plant burger with bacon. And uh, they, I've kind of got known now in the Honest Burger as like the guy that has a slightly weird order, but they go, oh, do you want your usual? And like everyone knows that's what I have. 
it's an amazing experience that you have now. Now, the reason I think that's interesting, because I wrote an article about that about two months ago, about how much I loved Honest Burgers for that reason. Then something interesting happened. About three weeks after I'd written the article, the branch manager left, and most of her team left as well. She all, they all moved to a different store. And over the next couple of weeks, a lot of the things I'd loved about it started to disappear. So the photos came down and the plants left because it turns out it was the manager and her team that had put all those up. The music changed because it was the music they played. And the next time I went in there and ordered my plant burger with bacon, 20 minutes after I'd ordered, they came back and said, sorry, the chef just wanted to check. Did you really mean real bacon with that? And it was a big moment for me because as great as the experience had been before, when I'd written the first article, I thought I was recommending Honest Burgers. But it turns out I was really recommending Liz and her team and what they'd done with the empowerment that they get given, mm. but what they'd done with that environment that have made that connection. I'm sure the new team will make it equally good and have their own stamp on it. But it was a big interesting lesson for me of the difference between this is the brand that's going to be the same everywhere versus actually you give your team that empowerment. They created that environment. That was the experience I was buying into. And now I go and see Liz at uh, Gordon Ramsay's Street Burgers in Covent Garden where she lives to. Uh, it, it, I mean, we, we talked a lot about sort of examples of, of strong leadership and vision and tying that back to values, that kind of thing. What would you say your leadership superpower is I, um, if you had one? Yeah, I, it's, yeah I, I think you'd have to ask my team if I have one or not. I, do you know what? I guess over time, I think it's probably authenticity. If I look back over, you know, I've done lots of leadership roles, run branches, run regional teams, country teams, you know, I'm... Uh, managing partner at the foundation as, as you say and I think over that 25 years I think I'm just quite authentic I think you get what you see I'm a started life on a market stall in Essex I've still got the accent I'm kind of you know, I'm not really into hierarchy very much and I think I think that's always worked well with the teams it's not a deliberate thing it's just how I am but I think if you're really authentic it makes you very approachable it means that people can trust what you say but it also means that people can challenge you and feel comfortable challenging with you telling you when they think you're wrong sharing ideas with you yeah. and I think if you're authentic as any leader that filters through the whole organization the way the organization works and you avoid a lot of problems you avoid a lot of problems that might come from contradictions being hypocritical from seeing like you're not telling the truth about things if you're human and you're authentic, and I like to think I'm both of those things, yep. then that just becomes the way that you work and the way the organization works. So I think, again, you have to ask my team, I think for me that's probably the thing that is my biggest strength in terms of being a leader. Yeah, I would say that that is the hallmark of any successful leader. Mm. And, and we've had a number of them on this podcast and they would all say the same thing. Yeah. Um, lastly, if you could, you've had a really interesting career from a market stall to working with HSB to now obviously doing the work that you do. Mm. If you had the choice, would you pick a different career and what might that be? Yeah, I think it's a great question. So, um, so I, I mean, it sounds silly because I've written a book. I would love to be a writer. I would love to be a, a writer. I'd probably a journalist. If I go way back when I was 14, 15, I really wanted to be a journalist. But my best friend also wanted to be a journalist. And so I kind of thought, well, we can't both do the same thing. And he now is a brilliantly successful journalist, which I'm slightly jealous of. <laughs> um, so I think I, I really love observing people and seeing the way the world works. I'm really interested in big things that happen in the world, but also the small minutiae that happens in local communities. So I think I would have loved to have been the journalist writing stories about people, you know, seeing the world, telling the truth about what you see, as Stephen King says. Um, and so there may 
still be time to do that. Whether I uh, would have chosen a different career from the one I've got is is maybe just a slightly different question because, you know, there's never been a plan for my career. I've always taken the approach of, you know, try things, see what you enjoy, keep doing more of that, mm. the stuff you don't enjoy, stop doing that. And I've really loved the career I've had. I've been very lucky to spend so much time doing the kind of customer work, working in very creative areas, working with some brilliant people. So I certainly wouldn't change anything about the career I've had. Um, but maybe in my next 20 years, I'll do a bit more writing and see if I can bring the two together somehow. Well, I'll tell you what, that your, your enjoyment and, uh, and the work that you do to produce the human experience. I, I love this book and I would encourage our, our audience and our listeners, if they've got some time, please go ahead and, and can you get this on Amazon? or It's on Amazon, all good bookstores. It's in the UK, USA, Australia, uh, available in all of those at the moment. Fantastic. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to speak with you today and look forward to getting you back on this podcast in the future. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Thank you.